0: to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This is my last message in this short series on the state of the church. In previous years, I've kind of given that in one sermon. I felt that there were more things we needed to talk about this year. So I've spent most of the month of February going over that. We've talked about how uh, in the church... Today, in this year, 2009, across America, in our community, and even in our fellowship, we are in danger of failing to love each other the way that God has called us to love each other. We're in danger of, in our busyness and distractions and the many things that occupy our attention, failing to give time and attention to the centrality that the church family ought to be to our lives. I don't know if you've thought about this, for good or for ill, but this is a foretaste of forever. Did you know that? So if you're bored, well, that may not be heaven's fault (laughs) that may be our fault but the reality is is that your church family is a taste of what heaven is going to be like as we come together and spend forever together in the presence of God now abide these three faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love when faith is sight and hope has become realization and reality the thing that's going to be left is our love for God and each other and we're going to be together In eternity. And we need to give attention to that now. The church needs to be, not the institution, not the organization, but the family needs to be the hub around which our life rotates. We're in danger of losing that because we have so many things cluttering our lives. And this morning I want to speak to you about a third danger, and that is the danger today, and it's been here for a while, but it's getting worse, and the danger is that believers are being guided more by their emotions than they are by sound doctrine, than they are by biblical teaching. Now when I say that, I watch the group at 8 o'clock, you know. And you can almost see the eyes rolling back in their head. (laughs) He's talking about theology again. (laughs) More of that theology stuff. But I want to remind you this morning, let me give you a definition for doctrine. The definition of doctrine is theology. Theology is the study of God, particularly, and all that He has revealed in general. In other words, it's the study of the Bible. And the word doctrine means teaching, and teaching, very simply, is what you have come to believe. So when I talk about theology or doctrine, I'm talking about what you believe. And whether or not you've taken the time to put down on paper what you believe, you have beliefs. Right now, this morning, everyone in this room has a theology. You have doctrine. You have beliefs. And those beliefs are important. Because the Scripture says, and that's my basis of authority, The scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And what that simply means is, your beliefs dictate your behavior. What you think controls what you do. And whether you are conscious of your beliefs or not, they're in there. And those beliefs govern your thinking. Now, you can learn things a lot of different ways. You can learn from experience. I told both of my sons growing up on numerous occasions, there are some things you cannot afford to learn by experience. I hope you believe that. That's why God gave us this book, so we wouldn't have to figure it all out by experience. Some things are rather costly. You don't want to wait till you get to hell. To realize that it is appointed to man once to die, and after that there's a judgment. That's a little late to find that out. But if you've ever touched a hot stove, you have formed an opinion about heat and the top of the stove. That opinion is your belief. You believe now, whether you did before or not, that that burner is hot and it hurts. And it governs your actions. You don't go around touching hot stoves. How many of you have intentionally touched a hot stove lately? Okay, if I ask that question in the nursery, I might get a different response. But you have all learned from experience. You believe something and it governs your behavior. That's true of everything you do in life. Your beliefs govern your behavior. My concern this morning is that believers, Christians, in the church are in danger of thinking the wrong things and being governed by their emotions instead of by biblical truth that controls their thoughts and guides their actions. Because it is the nature of children to be influenced and governed by their emotions and the things around them, rather than by the the maturity and wisdom that comes with age. Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ. So we're no longer to be children. The implication of Paul's message is that it is possible to be a child in the faith. And this is further underscored by John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, when he tells us about three different categories of christians he says and this is in your study guide on the inside page it's also found in your bible in 1 john chapter 2 paul or john says in that passage i'm writing to you children because you know the father i'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the word of god abides in you i am writing to you fathers because you know Him who was from the beginning. I have written to you, children, because your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. I have written to you, young men, because you're strong and the Word of God abides and you've overcome the evil one. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who was from the beginning. In John's uh, terminology the one from the beginning is Jesus Christ and what John is saying to us is here are three levels of spiritual maturity children who know the forgiveness of sins and have been introduced to God the Father isn't that where you start and young men who are characterized by two key points the word of God abides in their lives they know the scriptures And they have overcome Satan. They can recognize and discern temptation. They know how to deal with it. Because as Jesus dealt with it in the wilderness, they too can say, It is written. They know the Word of God. And they can can combat the enemy because they have the Scripture imprinted on their mind and heart to give them truth to influence right choices. Then he says, You fathers, you really have come to know Jesus. Through years of faithfulness and growth and maturity and assimilating the Word of God and becoming strong, you have learned to be intimate with Jesus Christ. You have learned his ways. And so it is possible for you to be. This morning and every one of us is somewhere along the continuum from spiritual infancy, you were just born again, to spiritual adulthood as a, as a father, as a mother in the faith who has come to know the ways of God through Jesus Christ. Or to be filled with youthful Strength and vigor because you have now learned the word of God and built it into your life. And so Paul says we're no longer to be children. Now, what characterizes children? I had a unique opportunity yesterday of four possible grandparents. Three of them had to work. That left me who did not have anywhere I had to be yesterday. And since grandchild number two arrived this past week, about 4.30 on Tuesday afternoon, the new parents again had a doctor's appointment with the pediatrician for the newborn. And so Stephen called me up and said, Dad, would you watch Caden for us tomorrow? We haven't figured out how to manage uh, two kids going to the doctor. He didn't say all that, but... (laughs) That's what I said. He said it's too hard for us to take everybody to the doctor, and I said, "Okay, I'll watch Caden." So Caden came over. Now, Rowena had done a pretty good job of preparing the the uh, family room for Caden's arrival. She put out the little table and chair, and the toys, and the Duplo blocks, and uh, the puzzles, and you know more things than. Uh, 20-month-old could possibly need in six hours. Well, maybe not. He didn't play a whole lot with those things, by the way. But anyway, they were there for him. And so he arrived. And uh, if you've been in our house, you know that you can go from the, the, the family room to the kitchen down the hallway to the dining room to the living room back to the family room to the kitchen down the hallway to the dining room back to the living room. And after I made that trip about... 10 or 15 times in the first 30 minutes I realized that I wasn't going to last if I kept that up and so we got creative with furniture we barricaded the uh, great the living room off we put it in the entryway we blocked the hallway with the dining chairs um, we were up and down the stairs a few times and I try to keep that to a minimum and so uh, we barricaded the stairs, and, and finally I had closed off the laundry room and confined this wandering 20-month-old to the family room in the kitchen. Then I started moving things off of the tables that were in jeopardy and the plants, and because dirt is so much more interesting than duplos. Everybody knows that. And so I had moved that stuff around. And so we were making progress. I finally felt like things were pretty well child proofed. But the thing about children is, whatever catches their eye has their total attention and focus. They want to go and investigate. And so pretty soon we discovered pots on the floor that didn't have anything in them. And I thought, well, that's pretty harmless. We can carry those around. But I had overlooked the water cooler. And uh, he knew that if you put the pot under the cooler, you should be able to get water to come in it. And he figured out how to do the lever. So then we had to turn the water cooler around. And uh, because uh, up and down the lever went and the water came out in either direction. Isn't that amazing? That is just amazing. And so so children are just... Focused on, wow, that's that's blue, that's red, That that makes water. And they go to whatever has their attention. That's why God gave children parents. <laughs> because if they're in a dangerous environment, the mature adults have to be paying attention and be vigilant because if that attractive thing is across four lanes of traffic, They're off in a flash, unless you're right on top of it. If it's up a flight of stairs, it makes no difference. Never mind that we can go up, even though we don't know how to come down. I'm on to it. And so children, by nature, are drawn to whatever catches their attention. And you've got to be on top of them. You've got to be ready. You know, my goal was to create an environment where he could wander and play and do whatever he wanted to without getting hurt and without hurting anything that was irreplaceable. And so I created an environment for him that he could safely wander and explore. But by the same token, you still have to be attentive. I used to say that when his dad was growing up. I never knew what to prohibit. Because he could think of things that I never, in my wildest imagination, would have dreamed to say. Don't do that. It just—it was amazing what he could come up with. So I had a certain amount of sadistic glee yesterday, knowing that paybacks are doubled, and I can see it coming. And uh, oh, is that going to be fun? But anyway, that's another story. Children are spontaneous. Whatever draws their attention. Children are trustful. If they have never been hurt or abused, children will trust anyone. They have natural trust. They have natural confidence. They let you throw them in the air. I would never let you throw me in the air, even if you could. Which you can't, I'm confident. But if you could, I wouldn't let you do that. (laughs) But children just, you know, they trust you. They trust everybody who's nice to them. Gets on their level. Looks them in the eye. Offers them something. Children just trust. Children are gullible. They believe anything. They have these wonderful imaginations. You can be reading stories and and you can get the inflection and the look in your face and mimic the voices and change, you know, and, and they're just, wow. And they're right in the story because they have such amazing imaginations. They can live in that element. I think I loved to read so much when I was, I still do. But when I was a child, when I When I learned how to read, it was fascinating because they could get lost in that. I was one of the hardy boys. And I was on this quest. I was going to solve this crime. Man, I was right there. I could smell the dirt and the mustiness in the cave, you know, looking for the treasure. Children have this amazing imagination. And because of that, they can also be misled because they're... They're gullible. They will believe what you tell them. You have to be careful what you say to a child. Because even though they have a phenomenal imagination, they can't always separate the abstract from the concrete. And and, and you start talking to them about things, and boy, pretty soon they're doing stuff you never thought because they take you literally. They're gullible, they're easy to persuade. But in this passage, Paul gives these illustrations of children. He says they're tossed here and there by waves. They are carried about by winds of doctrine. They're easily influenced and trustful. They are led astray by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And spiritual children are just like that. They're pulled in all these directions by their emotions. And Paul warns us that we are not to be children any longer in the faith. We need to grow up. We need to become mature. What is a spiritual child like? First of all, like the little child that spontaneous spiritual children are driven by their emotions. Their feelings and what appeals to them pulls them more than their careful assessment of a situation and their mature judgment. They are pulled by their emotions in multiple directions. Positively, in the the best sense, uh, sort of, emotional... Our spiritual children are drawn to whatever appeals to their senses and brings immediate personal pleasure. It expresses itself in worship styles, in groups that they choose to belong to, in prayer habits, and other forms of spirituality that are primarily aimed at making us feel good. How many people today are just drawn by that which has good feeling, whether it's true or not, whether they have thought through the implications or not? Negatively, they are repelled by discipline in the spiritual life. I attended a conference, well, class couple of weeks ago when I was out in Colorado Springs. And the the gentleman teaching the course has spent his whole life, both in college, university, and in seminary, building a thesis of human behavior that has helped him become very successful in job placement. What this guy does is he has identified fifty something character aptitudes or abilities that are naturally inherent from birth. His theology, his belief system, tells him that God has hardwired us to be inclined towards certain things, skill-wise, aptitude-wise. And he has developed a system of finding out what things you are most gifted in or naturally enabled to do, he says, by God, so that he can match up your innate skills with the job market and get you a good fit in the marketplace. And, and he goes into great detail about all of this. But anyway, uh, in the process of that, In addition to aptitudes, he says people have certain character traits. And among those character traits, there is one of them that determines whether you are likely to be successful in overcoming your weaknesses in order to move on in life in a successful way, or whether you're going to be controlled by your weaknesses. Now, how many of you here this morning have weaknesses? Could I see your hands? How many of you here are asleep and didn't hear the question? How many of you here are perfect and have no weaknesses? Okay, you're all awake now. There's nothing like a little uh adrenaline to get you going here. What did I miss? Okay, everybody has weaknesses. Who is it that is likely to overcome their weaknesses... And move towards success in life. Now this is purely human terms. There is one character trait that determines whether that will be possible or not. You know what it is? Self-discipline. Self-discipline. Now again, I, I'm not, I've stepped away from the Bible just for a moment because there's a lot of theological problems with what I'm saying. But some people are naturally more disciplined than others. Some people have learned the keys of delayed gratification. Some people have learned how to wait for reward. They may have come by that naturally, or they may have had parenting that help them figure those things out, but self-discipline, he says, is the one thing that will determine whether the weaknesses of a person will pull them to failure or their sheer ability to deny their emotions and pay the price for success will lead them toward victory. Now, that's a very interesting discovery. I'm happy to tell you that every child of God can have self-discipline because its corollary, self-control, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit of God, He will give you the capacity to have self-control. But children do not exercise self-control by the very fact that they're children. They are pulled in whatever way their emotions lead them and it takes a parent to guide them and keep them on track until they begin to learn these truths about delayed gratification, about Uh, exercising self-control, about those kinds of things. And Paul says, in the faith, we do not need to be children any longer. We need to grow up and stop being controlled by our emotions, but controlled by the Spirit of God. Based on sound doctrine." no longer carried here and there by every wind of teaching, but based on sound doctrine from the Word of God, we are to be self-controlled or spirit-controlled so that we can operate by faith in obedience to the will of God through His Spirit. And spiritual children don't operate that way. They're still pulled hither and yon by whatever they feel like at the moment. And whether you're going to be successful in your spiritual walk is in part determined by how, much, how yielded you are to the Spirit of God in the realm of self-control. Another problem with spiritual children is that they are trustful of anyone who comes along and offers them some credentials and sounds plausible, and particularly if they have a message that is desirable. Next week, I'm going to begin a series of messages on the topic of prayer. We're going to be looking at prayer from many different angles, and we're going to be looking at the prayers of Scripture. But most people today, most Christians today in this country, believe that the goal of prayer is to learn the tricks to get God to do what you want Him to do. How can I get answers to my prayers? What do we mean by that? What we mean is, how can I get God to do what I want him to do? Never stopping to think about the implications of that. The person who says, teach me to pray, Lord, so I too can get what I want, is the person who wants to be God, not follow God. They want to be God. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's another sermon. But spiritual children want to accumulate teachers and speakers who will give them the kinds of things that they want to hear. Give me three easy steps to become spiritually mature. Will you give me me three steps I can take towards spiritual maturity? I'm going to give you three steps, okay? But they're not easy. Step number one. Love and pursue the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. In other words, give it all you've got every moment of every day. That's step number one. Step number two. Always do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Because He will always give you the power to do it. So always do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. That's step number two. Step number three wait between twenty and forty years. Because you will not grow up overnight. You've got to give it to some of you are writing this down. I'm amazed. That's okay. These steps will work. (laughs) But they're not easy. And they aren't quick. Because there's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. If you want to become a a, a mature child of God, a saint of God, you've got to go through childhood and youth and strength and assimilating the Word of God and come into uh, spiritual fatherhood, motherhood, because you have walked long and closely with Jesus Christ. There aren't any shortcuts. There's no easy way. There's no quick bypass. God takes time to sanctify us. And that wise, kind, sweet, Loving, stalwart, old man that I want to be someday is still out there in the future. It's going to take more time for Jesus to make me look like him. Even though I look more like him today than I did 40 years ago. I look less like him today than I will in 20 years if I live that long. God willing. There's no shortcut. Spiritual children are also gullible. And because of that, they are blinded by culture and current trends. And they lack a thoughtful world view. I want to ask you something. When life happens, do you think in biblical terms... Let me give you an example. I was listening to the radio the other day, and I heard this interesting statement. This is on the news. It said linguists have studied language and personal pronouns. And they have discovered that words like I, me, you, we have been in existence. Those words in the in the Anglo-Saxon tongue that have come to us in English, we call them personal pronouns: I, you, we, me. Those words have been in existence for forty thousand years. Now I want to ask you something: Do you have a worldview that automatically filters that statement? Or do you even think about it? 40,000 years, that's a long time. Let's see, where would 40,000 years take me? Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was on the earth. 2,000 years before that, Abraham heard the call of God from Ur of the Chaldees. Approximately 2,000 years before that, Adam was sinning in the garden. Well, that's only 6,000 years. Where's the other 34,000? Uh-oh. Something's wrong with their math. Do you think that way? Does that stuff go through your head? When, when you hear that so-and-so died, famous person, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Hmm? Yeah, where, where are they now? Are they with Jesus? Or in hell. That's the first thing that I think of. And sometimes I find myself praying for people who are famous people. Politicians, authors, sports people, actors. Because I know they don't know Jesus. And I want them to know him. Because no matter what they've said or thought or done, they have a soul made in the image of God. And they're going to spend eternity with him or without him. And that matters to me. Does it matter to you? Have you thought about the implications of being a Christian and believing in evolution? I want to read you just a short excerpt from an article that appeared in the January 2009 edition of Christianity Today called The Evolution of Darwin. In case you didn't know, his 200th birthday was last month, or maybe January now. Who? February 12th. That's president, yeah. That's scary. Nah. Okay, so he would have been 200 years old, except he's somewhere right now. And so this guy is writing in Christianity Today about the evolution of Darwin. He's talking about why Darwin relinquished his Christian faith. Actually, if you read the article, the reason Darwin relinquished his Christian faith is, guess what? Some bad things happened to him and a family member. And he got mad with God. If there's a loving God in heaven, he would never do that, so there must not be a loving God. Does that sound like a little little bit like a personal problem to you? It does to me. It sounds like he was ticked off with God. And so he set about... In part, driven to find a way to explain away the necessity of God. And came up with a theory of evolution. That ought to tell you something right there about Darwin, by the way. But the interesting thing is, Darwin never excluded God from the equation of life. Although he postulated a natural explanation for the evolution of life, he never was an atheist outright. In fact, he did not exclude theism from evolution. Today, and this article begins that way, he says, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Now, if nothing else, that ought to tell you something about atheists. They have this need to be intellectually fulfilled. I can understand that. They're missing something. But anyway, Darwin made it possible. But Darwin did not require atheism in order to believe in evolution. And so I'm waiting to hear the punchline of this guy's article in Christianity Today, who was a former policy analyst in the Reagan White House and the author of What's So Great About Christianity and other books, he says this history is important because we, evangelical Christians, my emphasis, we can embrace Darwin's account of evolution without embracing his metaphysical naturalism and unbelief. Dawkins and others like him are, in a way, confusing the two faces of Charles Darwin. They're under the illusion that to be an evolutionist is essentially to be an atheist. Darwin, to his credit, rejected the equation of these two stances as illogical. In other words, he is saying you can be a Christian and be an evolutionist. They're not incompatible ideologies. Are you with me, or am I back on my hobby horse? Are you there? What's the problem with evolution, really? Why why couldn't God have used it to make us? You know, why couldn't he have... Work through the process. After all, science tells us the earth is billions of years old. The solar system is billions of years old. Why couldn't God have worked in that primordial soup? Why couldn't he have sent the lightning bolt to cause those amino acids to form up in that first? Why why couldn't God use that process? Thank you. Yeah, you know, the theology of evolution is in Romans chapter 5, not Genesis. For by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, so that death is passed upon all men. Now, here's the problem with evolution. You can be an evolutionist, As long as you do not believe anything died before Adam's sin. Which is to say you cannot be an evolutionist and be an informed Christian. Because the Bible doesn't say just humans didn't die. It says animate life did not die before Adam's sinned. No mollusks died. No cats died. No rats died. No horses died. No mice died. No hawks flew out of the sky and grabbed them up. Read your Bible. When Jesus restores this world in the kingdom, it says that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Death came by sin. This world was marred by sin. Death is the product of sin, and the first animal that ever died on this planet, God killed in order to take the skin to cover the shame of Adam and Eve because the wages of sin is death and death brings separation from God and shame and he was teaching them in that first example that it requires a blood sacrifice to cover their shame and their sin. Now, why is this important? Because evolution is a natural explanation and it places human beings along the evolving chain of animal life in the same essential category as lab rats and beef cattle. Evolution, in its naturalistic thinking, places the same value on human beings as a cow or a dog or a cat or a a rat. And don't let anybody try to talk you around that one. Because it's illogical. It's not rational to say that humans have more worth than animals if we evolve from animals. That's only a value system that we've placed on it. People, the ecologist out there, the the, the save the owls and the whales crowd, they are logical. They value the life of a whale on the par with the life of a person. They actually make sense. They're consistent with their thinking. Only when we try to make human beings more valuable than animals, if we are evolutionists, do we become illogical. And where did morality come from? And where did the sense of right and wrong come from? If we are merely the product of purely inanimate matter that happened, And where does that take us with abortion and with euthanasia and with materialism? When does a human being become a living soul? When do they get a sin nature? When do they become human? At what point in the womb does this occur? If you know your Bible, you know the answer. The Scripture has an answer for this. The Bible says he gave to Adam and Eve the capacity to reproduce after their own kind. What kind is that? He formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that person became a living soul. We have the Spirit of God coming together with the dirt of the ground in a human being that God shaped and crafted, in a living soul, and that human being from which the woman was then made had the capacity to reproduce after their own kind. So when does a developing embryo become human? From the moment of conception. The moment that that egg begins to divide that has been fertilized by a sperm cell, that moment, there is a whole human being there. It doesn't happen sometime during gestation. It happens at conception. Do you know why that's true, biblically? Because if God added the soul to a person somewhere along the line, that soul is sinful from birth. And God would be responsible for adding a defective thing to a, to a developing body. God doesn't do that. Sin entered the world by Adam and Eve, and through them it has infected the whole race. Caden, my grandson, is 20 months old. Back to him for a moment. I had successfully moved everything out of his way that he could possibly damage or be damaged by. He was roaming around freely, but my eyes are not two feet off the ground. And I had forgotten the stereo system that was underneath the end table. And he discovered it, not too long into the adventure, by the way. And he's over there turning knobs and flipping levers. And I watched that for a few moments, and I thought to myself, can he do some damage here? Well, probably not to himself, but the levers were at risk of being damaged. And so I said, Caden, and he ignored me. I said, Caden, no, and he ignored me. And so I said, Caden, ah, now he looked, no, and he just looks at me. And he looks at the stereo system. And he looks at me. And he sees this little thing that toddlers can grab a hold of and walk with. It's like a little car kind of thing. Just within reach. And so he looks at me. He grabs that, pulls it over, and hunches down beneath it. And reaches over and grabs the stereo. I was amused, but I also thought biblically. I said, this is sin nature. (laughs) It's on the hard drive. He's going to hide from me and keep doing his sin. He's going to disobey willfully because he wants to and he knows it's wrong. He's going to hide and do it. And then I thought about the joys of being a grandparent and sending him home with his daddy, who will have to deal with those problems in the main, and how glad I am that he has to deal with that. (laughs) It's there. You don't have to teach children to sin. They have a sin nature from birth because they are the offspring of their parents. And my grandson inherited mine, and I inherited my parents, all the way back to Adam. And human beings are human beings from the moment of conception. You can't just decide, ooh, we made a mistake, Uh, I'm not ready for a child, let's just do away with this one and we'll wait to a better time in life. That's a human life. You can't just decide... You know what, I got five already and I'm having trouble feeding them. I didn't mean to get pregnant. Now let's just get rid of this one. It's not convenient. I have cancer and I need chemotherapy. And it's incompatible with the life of the fetus. Let's do away with the fetus so I can live. Ooh, that's tougher, isn't it? It's not tougher if you know that there are two people that need treatment, not just one. Two patients. One of them is just as human as its mother. And the same with euthanasia. Old people, senile, Alzheimer's, strapped in their wheelchairs, drooling in the hallway. They don't know who they are, much less who you are. What quality of life is that? Let's just let them peacefully go. They're a drain on the economy. They're taking away my Social Security. Why don't we just let them go? Because the moment they stop breathing, they're going to wake up in heaven or hell. And they're going to live there forever. You think your quality of life is bad now. Just wait till you wake up in hell. You think you're so miserable today that you have the right to end it. Just think what it's going to be like when you can't end it. And it goes on forever. Human beings are valuable because unlike all other animate life, we are made in the image of God and we will live forever, one place or another. And we need to accord human life the dignity that that deserves. Friends, we have been influenced by a culture that says you can have whatever you want. You can get it today. You don't even have to pay for it. There won't even be any interest till next year. You deserve it. You ought to to be happy. You ought to be filled with pleasure. You ought to have whatever you want now. And if it's inconvenient, you should have the right to fix it. Whether it's a possession or a person. You deserve your happiness. We've bought into a lie. And spiritual children are gullible. And they believe it. But mature saints of God know some things are costly. Some choices are hard. Some things, like standing up for your faith, may someday cost you your life. That is not fun. But there is eternity. And you will wake up one place or the other. And friends, I want us to to grow up this morning. Don't be children tossed here and there by... Every wind of doctrine. Don't be scattered about by waves and the craftiness of men and deceitful scheming. Don't buy the lie. This is not the end and this is not heaven. We are living on a higher plane for a greater cause, for a deeper purpose, and it matters. And if we walk with God, and if we obey the Spirit, our lives will be blessed. It may not be in creaturely comforts, but it will be in peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the end, we can say with Paul, who was facing, by the way, an executioner's axe, I have run my race. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. There is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And I look forward to hearing my Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the kingdom that I've prepared for you. Father, give us the courage to grow up, not to be children, to see through the lies, to understand who you are and what this world is really all about, and to walk by faith, not by sight, knowing that in the end, you have given us the truth, and we can count on it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.